We're continuing with our sermon series, Enjoying God. And this morning, I'm happy to announce that we're going to have a look at the positive side of what we had a look at last week. Uh, Last week, for reasons that I'd rather not get into, we had a look at practicing the presence of God during times of difficulty. And we looked specifically at the situation of grief and loss and sin and temptation and anger and frustration. Today, though, our theme is going to be more generally enjoying God through practicing His presence, enjoying God through practicing His presence. And we're going to begin where we left off last week in Psalm 139. We'll read just the first 12 verses of that psalm, and as well as the last two verses. God's Word says, O Lord, You have searched me, and You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is God's word. As we saw last week, this psalm teaches us that all of God is everywhere present all of the time, and the psalm encourages us to invite God in to what God already knows, to invite God into our lives. This conscious inviting of God in is what has traditionally been called practicing the presence of God. And this morning, I want us to consider three simple questions about practicing the presence of God. We're going to have a look at what it is, how we do it, and why do we do it. So the what, the how, and the why. So firstly, what it is. What does it mean to practice the presence of God? Practicing the presence of God simply means acknowledging the truth of Psalm 139 as often as possible, preferably all of the time. It means being continually aware of God throughout the day. Uh, One writer describes it as growing in being aware of and responding to God's presence, or more briefly and theologically, continually responding to God's omnipresence. Do you know that right now, all around us, there are sounds and pictures and moving images and music. You can't see it or hear them, 
But if we had a television set up the front here, we could tune in to those various images. Or if we had a radio, we could tune in and listen to John Matham or Classic FM. The sounds and the moving images are always there. I just need to tune in. And as we saw last week, God is always present, whether we acknowledge that or not. But he invites us to acknowledge him and to consciously do life with him, enjoy life with him. Now, you won't find this phrase, practicing the presence of God, in the Bible, but the concept is definitely there, expressed in various ways. And let me just mention a couple of passages. So Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 15, where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Or Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, literally your very selves, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Or as he writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Or Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, all of these passages and others like them describe enjoying God's presence continually, uh, something that can't just be done for 15 minutes at the beginning of the day or for just an hour on Sunday. Now, a sermon on the topic of practicing the presence of God would not be complete without making reference to a man called Nicholas Herman, who was born in eastern France in 1614. Uh, Nicholas was born into a peasant family. He wasn't a particularly well-educated man. Uh, as a youngster, he joined the army, and uh, his experiences there weren't particularly good. I think he was captured by the Germans in one war and injured by the Swedes in another. And uh, his whole experience really traumatized him, both physically, he uh, was uh, an invalid for, for all of his life, uh, but also mentally as well. And almost in order to get over his experience in the army, he joined a monastery. Um, he was following in the footsteps of one of his uncles. But instead of being trained for the priesthood or rising in the ranks to become an abbot or a person of influence, uh, they put Nicholas into the kitchen. For most of his 50 years, he prepared the meals and washed the dishes for that monastery. And yet this humble, uneducated man has had a major influence on Christian spirituality for the last 400 years. When he entered the monastery, Nicholas Herman took the name Brother Lawrence. I'm sure you've heard that name. He couldn't always be in the chapel. He couldn't always be in the library. And so what he did was to bring God into his own experience. He said that he came to the point where he constantly kept God in mind. And whenever his mind wandered from God, he would just gently recall his mind back to him. 
This practice so radically changed his life that the other monks in the monastery and monks in other monasteries begin to see him as someone who really knew God. And they'd come and have conversations with him. They'd want his advice on aspects of their own lives. Before his death, Brother Lawrence never wrote a word. Well, no, sorry, he did. I'll explain now. But he, he never wrote a book. Before his death, one of the abbots interviewed Brother Lawrence about his practices. And Brother Lawrence spoke quite reluctantly. It's quite touching, really. In one of the interviews, Lawrence says, I know a man who makes it his habit to practice the presence of God. It was a little bit like Paul in 2 Corinthians. You know, I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third hip of heaven. Lawrence was just too humble to speak about himself. But the abbot interviewed Brother Lawrence, and after his death, they took these interviews, or dialogues as they are called, and they published them along with some of his letters uh, in a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's still available. It's so old that it's available freely online. It's uh, passed, bypassed all of the copyright laws. Uh, and it's still popular today, one of the most influential works 400 years after it was first published. Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God. Which brings us then to the second question. How do we do this? How do I practice the presence of God? In one sense, it doesn't necessarily mean doing anything different. Rather, it's about a greater intentionality and presence in what we're already doing. But at the same time, there are some practices or habits that can help us to develop an awareness of God's presence. And I'll just mention four of them. It's certainly not a comprehensive list, just a few suggestions. And I'm not an expert. I'm just practicing, practicing the presence of God myself. But number one, we can practice turning our thoughts to God as the very first conscious act we make on a morning. As we open our eyes, we acknowledge that God is present. The day might be starting for me, but God has been there all the time. He's been with me through the night while I've been unconscious for hours, completely unable to sustain my own life. He's the one who's given me the 7,000 breaths and the 25,000 heartbeats to sustain me during the night without me having to think about it. As we read in Psalm 139 and verse 18, when I awake, I am still with you. I think I mentioned to you previously how Pastor John Stott used to begin his days later on in his life. As he awoke, he just quietly acknowledged each member of the Trinity. He would say, Father, I acknowledge that you are the creator of everything and my creator. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are the Redeemer of the world and my Redeemer. Holy Spirit, I recognize you as the one who sanctifies uh, your people and sanctifies me, who dwells within me. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and evermore will be. And Father, I ask that in this day I would please you Lord Jesus, I ask that in this day I would pick up my cross and follow you. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would sanctify me, that you would dwell in me and do in and through me what I cannot do in my own strength. Now, your first conscious thought doesn't have to be quite as elaborate as that. Just a simple good morning, Lord, would do. Uh, or perhaps just praying the Lord's Prayer or the 23rd Psalm or just another short passage of Scripture. But just making God our first thought each day. Number two, schedule some specific set times to be with God. I would strongly suggest a regular morning quiet time, just a few minutes at the beginning of each day where we give focused attention to God by reading his word and praying. We can certainly add other elements to that too, but reading God's word for ourselves and praying to him are vital. As the psalmist says, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. The problem with a morning quiet time, though, is that it's so easy to close our Bibles and go into the rest of the day without God. I know in my own training and in some of the teaching I received, the morning quiet time was really important, but it didn't have any connection with the rest of the day. It's so easy to compartmentalize our lives into the sacred quiet time and the secular the rest of the day. Now, the solution isn't to get rid of our quiet time by no means, but to continue to practice God's presence throughout the day. And we allow the one to strengthen the other. So our scheduled time of focusing on God strengthens our practice of the presence of God, and practicing the presence of God strengthens and enriches our scheduled times with him. It's worth trying to expand those scheduled times with God, too. So you might like to consider a brief afternoon quiet time. So you set your phone or your alarm for midday and spend just five minutes intentionally with God. Perhaps you could review the passage of Scripture that you read earlier that morning. Or simply sit quietly in His presence for a few moments. Or just take a deep breath before plunging into the rest of your day. And consider doing something similar just a few minutes before you go to sleep. Um, you know, just consciously look back over the day and thank God for the things that you can thank him for. Ask his forgiveness for the things that you need to do that for. Uh, later in our series, we'll have a look at the concept of Sabbath, setting aside an entire day to focus on and enjoy God. But just setting apart scheduled times to be with him. Maybe you could get one of those old-fashioned watches that beeps on the hour. And just use it as a reminder. You know, God is here. He is present. Uh, am I present to him? Number three, you could practice noticing God in creation. You could very intentionally take a walk on the beach or in Kirstenbosch, or simply walk a little more slowly and attentively down your street or in your garden and notice the trees and the grass and the flowers and the things that God has created. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, the reformer John Calvin once said, God revealed himself 
and daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. He shows his glory to us whenever we and wherever we cast our gaze. The skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God. Some believers focus on things like miraculous healings as demonstrations that God is at work in the world. And while that is certainly true, I believe that's too narrow a vision. We need to broaden our vision and realize that God is continually and everywhere breaking into our world in miraculous ways. Think of the miracle of that breath you just took. Now, how oxygen in the air gets transferred to blood cells, which is liquid, and how it's exchanged with carbon dioxide, which is a waste product from cells uh, that uh, are using energy, or something like that. I'm not a doctor. Apparently, if you spread out your lungs on the ground, they would cover a tennis court, and you'd be dead. Or as one writer puts it, think of a glass of water. It's the simplest of things, yet all of life depends on it. We drink water, we wash with it, we swim in it, we play with it. You can have water fights. We live in a world of water pistols. Why? Just so we can have fun. And it rains on you. We live in a world where water just falls out of the sky. Isn't it the most extraordinary thing? Which one of us would have designed a world in which water falls out of the sky? Yesterday, our family discovered a baby chameleon, several baby chameleons, in fact, in our garden, as, as small as my, as, as my little finger, with the revolving eyes and, and everything. You never need to be bored in God's world. You can pick up anything and be amazed at the glory and the wisdom and the sense of humor of our God. That Jesus himself urged us to look around more widely. In his Sermon on the Mount, he was saying, you know, look at the birds, look at the flowers. We used to sing that chorus, Jesus is Lord, creation's voice proclaims it, for by his power each tree and flower was planned and made. It's not all up to evolution. God is still in the business of creating. In Psalm 104 we read, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. God has created and designed every leaf on every branch of every tree on earth. The English writer Gilbert Keith Chesterton put it this way in one of his books. He said, children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. 
For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. Before I get completely carried away, number four. (laughs) Try to include and be aware of God's presence during mundane tasks. And this is at the heart of practicing the presence of God and was Brother Lawrence's main contribution to this concept. He famously said, we can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. On our congregational WhatsApp group, we're working our way through Kurt Bjorklund's book of prayers. And a few weeks ago, we came to the wonderful prayer written by the American writer Marjorie Holmes. The prayer is entitled, Praying while scrubbing a floor. Uh, Let me read it to you. Thank you for the privilege of scrubbing this floor. Thank you for the health and the strength to do it. That my back is straight and my hands are whole. I can push the mop. I can feel the hard surface under my knees when I kneel. I grasp the brush and let my energy flow down into it as I erase the dirt and make this floor bright and clean. Lord, thank you for everything that has to do with scrubbing this floor. Bless the soap and the bucket and the brush and the hands that do it. Bless the feet that are running in right now to truck mud into it. Those feet are the reason I do it. They are the living reasons for my kneeling here, half to do a job, half in prayer. The floor is a foundation. The family is a foundation. You are our foundation. Bless us all and our newly scrubbed floor. (laughs) So while you're doing the dishes or taking out the rubbish or doing the laundry or preparing the food or driving or standing in the queue at pick and pay or doing any number of other mundane tasks, remember that God is there. Talk to him. Thank him for who he is and for his impact on your life. Ask him for his help and worship him. Acknowledge that he's there. As we've said, we do all of these things in the presence of God, whether we acknowledge that or not. Practicing his presence means intentionally doing life with God. So washing the dishes with Jesus. Driving with Jesus, which is interesting. (laughs) Shopping with Jesus, working with Jesus, and enjoying life with him. So just four ideas, we could add many more. Uh, 
just to say if you've never tried to practice the presence of God, you might want to pick one of these rather than starting all of them and start with the easiest and keep on adding and experimenting and share with us what your experience is as well. Above all, don't become discouraged if you feel it's not working or that it takes too much time and effort and is difficult. It's meant to be difficult, just like anything else worthwhile doing in life. But finally, number three, why do we do it? Why should I practice the presence of God? What does it do for me? Well, let me begin by saying one very important thing that it does not do. Practicing or not practicing the presence of God does not make us any more or less God's sons or daughters. And that's very important. I'm going to keep coming back to this again and again. Every religion or philosophy in the world has the idea that when we come to God, we give him our righteousness, a list of things that we have done that we feel makes us acceptable to God. But the gospel is the good news that God in Jesus gives us his righteousness. Jesus takes my messed up life, my sin on himself on the cross, and in return he gives me his perfect life. His goodness, his love is credited to me. It's a free gift that we simply receive by faith. But that idea of needing to prove ourselves to others, to ourselves, to God, is so deeply ingrained within us that we keep on going back to it. We keep on thinking that our good works somehow top up Jesus' sacrifice or make us acceptable to God. But no, we're acceptable freely by grace through Christ's death. However, let me use an illustration from Tim Chester's book entitled Enjoying God. He says, say a father has two sons. Jack makes his dad breakfast every day and they chat for half an hour while they eat it together. Later in the day, Jack and his father hang out together, flying a kite, playing football, reading a book. Meanwhile, Jack's older brother, Phil, is embarrassed by his dad. Phil stays in his room all day with his music turned up loud. On the rare occasions when Phil communicates with his father, it's normally taken the form of dismissive grunts. How many sons does the father have? The answer is, of course, two. And what did they do to become sons? Nothing. They were simply born as sons. But only Jack enjoys being a son. Only Jack experiences a good relationship with his father. Practicing the presence of God won't make you more a Christian, and not doing so won't make you less of a Christian. Like Jack and Phil, we become children of our Heavenly Father by being born again. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ. Our status as God's children is a gift, but how much we enjoy that communion depends on what we do. So important to realize that God didn't save us so that he could move us judicially from being his enemies to being his sons and daughters. Jesus didn't die just to forgive our sins. Why did Jesus die? 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's about relationship. 
God saved us in order to restore us to our original purpose. What is our original purpose? Remember the Westminster Confession? What is the chief end, the chief purpose of man, of human beings? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You and I were made by God and for God. And if the idea of spending time with God now doesn't seem appealing to you, what makes you think you'll enjoy being with God forever in eternity? And if you aren't enjoying God now, and if you can't imagine enjoying Him in eternity, that's the surest sign you haven't really encountered the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God that you're not enjoying now is not the real God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is glorious and wonderful and amusing and wild. He's delightful. Maybe you need to be introduced to him for the very first time. So as we see over the last two weeks, there are many benefits to practicing the presence of God. As we saw last time, it helps us overcome temptation. It helps us endure suffering. It energizes our service. We're no longer trying to prove ourselves to God. We can relax and simply enjoy being used by, as a loving channel of God's power through us to others. It helps us to give vibrant witness to God. But there's something far more important than that. And let me close with one final quotation from Tim Chester's book. He says, on her wedding day, a bride may receive wealth, status, property, and privilege from her new husband. She might be delighted to have access to his DVD collection. She might be excited about moving into her new home. She might be glad to have her name added to his bank account. But what she really wants is him. There are so many blessings that flow from being a Christian or from practicing the presence of God, but the real blessing is Christ. Christ is himself, his own reward. And so may God grant that we would leave this place with quiet minds and strong hearts, ready to love and serve and enjoy the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for the assurance and the reassurance from your word that you are always, everywhere present, intimately involved in our lives. Lord, we ask please that in this week that lies ahead, we would be completely present to you that you would guide us and lead us into more and more of an awareness of you, a delight in you that spills over into our lives and is a witness to others around us. Thank you that you give us yourself for this life and for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.